It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me, or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Today I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support in the Congress and, I believe, in the country. Americans have rallied support, have rallied to support the Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. This made, we made this decision in close consultation with our allies and our partners around the world, particularly in Europe, because a united response to Putin's aggression has been my overriding focus to keep all NATO and all of the EU and our allies totally united. We're moving forward with this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European, all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. Not anymore. Not anymore. That's your president assuring you that he's not to blame and that he's going to do this heroic thing, cutting off Russian oil. Now, look, we've been saying every day, why are we importing Russian oil? Why are we paying them, financing the war? And the Biden administration had resisted, you know, stopping that. Uh, remember Jen Psaki kind of mumbling when Peter uh, Ducey kind of put backed her into a corner yesterday. Uh, they weren't they weren't eager to do this, but they finally did it. So what does that mean for us? Well, a couple of things I think are going on here. First of all, oh, this is so twisted, and forgive my cynicism. I've just been around too long. It's pretty clear to me that the Biden administration wants this war to continue. My understanding that is that Joe Biden's poll numbers are going up because he's the commander-in-chief, of course, you know, overseeing this very successful war, you know, we're prosecuting successfully this, uh, by proxy, this war of Russia on Ukraine. But, of course, that's not true. And I don't think, you know, Tulsi Gabbard was on last night with Laura Ingram, kind of laying it out. And I don't, I'm not, a, I want to just say, I want to give a a caution I'm not fully, I am not embracing Tulsi Gabbard. She's beautiful. I love to hear her speak. She's eloquent, but she's involved with the World Economic Forum. And so there's a red flag, red flag, red flag always when I hear her speak. But she said some really intelligent things. She's very smart, and not everything she says is bad. But she was talking about how uh, this is, something's wrong here. Larry Kudlow kind of pointed out um, something important uh, last night in his interview on Fox on Fox Business, he was talking about uh, what's happening with Zelensky. And this is something that Tulsi also pointed out in her interview, something that's not making headlines. Remember, Russia is going after Ukraine purportedly. One of the main things is that Russia does not want Ukraine to join NATO. So I'll let 
um, Larry Kudlow explain what happened yesterday. This is clip five. Let's listen. One reason the stock market rallied earlier was an announcement from an ABC News interview. This is from Zelensky. I believe he was interviewed by David Muir. Um, yes. Ukraine will no longer seek right now NATO membership. That's a very big thing. And that kind of pulls the rug out from a lot of the Western rationale here. I mean, it is, I find it him moving backwards. I find it un unseemly to the point of annoying because we've argued from day one, not day one, but Biden finally got around to it, that we were trying to preserve their sovereignty, but also right. their freedom to choose democracy or, you know, Putin. And if he's saying he, they're going to give up aspirations to get into NATO, then you have to ask yourself, why are we fighting? Now, he may fight for his sovereignty, okay, but that's only part of the story as far as we're concerned. So I found this very troubling. Much as I admire Zelensky and his courage, and he's been a great figure, Churchillian figure, as some people say, this is kind of a semi-surrender. I don't think it's going to stop Putin in the short run, but it may actually encourage Putin, who says he's got Zelensky on the run. So I don't understand this point at all. And like I say, stock market traders actually bought the market on news. We noticed. They, they it's thought, positive now. Yeah, yeah. They thought maybe, you know, this would be a shorter end to it. I, I, I don't want to make any predictions. I'm just saying how surprised I was that Zelensky made this comment. He also okay, said, by I the wanna, way. Okay, I'm going to interrupt um, him to speed up a little bit. He also talks about how Zelensky mentioned that they could negotiate something on one of the provinces that Russia wants. So that was a huge equivocation. And uh, that's why Larry's saying, why this ch this could change everything. Why isn't the Biden administration talking about this? Why isn't the new Why aren't the news reporting this? All right. So, th so that that's the first point I think I'd like to make. I think that this war is helpful to the Biden administration. I think that's that's my suspicion. Uh, remember, they kind of encouraged this war. They talked it up like two weeks before it ever happened, at least two weeks. He's going to invade. We think he's going to invade. They keep giving us a time. I think it's going to be Wednesday. It might be Thursday. Uh, just a unnecessary conversation, egging him on. Uh, okay, so that's uh, helping Biden with his numbers, but there's another part to that that's really even more troubling. This is one other statement from President Biden in his speech, clip eight. Look, let me be clear about uh, two other points. First, it's simply not true that my administration or policies are holding back domestic energy production. That's simply not true. Even amid the pandemic, companies in the United States pumped more oil during my first year in office than they did during my predecessor's first year. We're approaching a record levels of oil and gas production in the United States, and we're on track to set a record oil production next year. In the United States, 90 percent of onshore oil production takes place on land that isn't owned by the federal government. And of the remaining 10 percent, that occurs on federal land. The oil and gas industry has millions of acres leased. They have 9,000 permits to drill now. They could be drilling right now, yesterday, last week, last year. They have 9,000 to drill onshore that are already approved. So let me be clear. Let me be clear. They are not using them for production now. That's their decision. These are the facts. We should be honest about the facts. We should. We should. And so let's be honest about those facts, because that is just quintessential Joe Biden lying through his beautifully manicured, coiffed, 
teeth. Have you ever heard that? Regard to teeth. That's a new new adjective for teeth. Uh, but, you know, so so let's see. Let me take it backwards. He says that it's the, it's really the oil companies. They have all of these permits, and they're, they're choosing not to drill. Ask them. You know, they're the ones. They're the ones that are responsible. My, my administration has done nothing to interfere with this. Also, I'll just let Ted Cruz kind of set the record straight instead of me spelling it out. Here's Ted Cruz, clip one. You know, when Joe Biden came in the very first week in office, he shut down the Keystone Pipeline. He destroyed 11,000 high-paying jobs, including 8,000 union jobs. He immediately froze new leases both on federal land onshore and on federal land offshore. That's had a dramatic effect. We're seeing the prices skyrocketing at the pump. And, you know, it it really is striking. In 2019, the United States became a net, net energy exporter. We are an oil and gas superpower. And yet under Joe Biden last year, for the first time since then, America stopped being a net energy exporter as our production went down. And, and the result of Biden's presidency has been that the enemies of America, countries like Russia, like Iran, like Venezuela, are all uh, getting stronger, getting richer, getting more aggressive, getting more hostile because the president is simultaneously weakening our own ability to produce energy and strengthening their ability to produce energy. I got to say, it's backwards on both fronts. Yeah, absolutely. And those permits, uh, my understanding from listening to oil industry executives is that those take years to develop. It's a permit. It's like you go out and you have to explore and find land where you think there's going to be oil. You just don't start drilling uh, and the other thing is because they saw the industry was afraid that Joe Biden would do what Joe Biden did, and that is shut down oil production, there was a flurry of requests for these permits before he came into office. So it's uh, it's a disingenuous proposition, and I Ted Cruz points out that Joe Biden, one of the things he said, uh, you know, is that gas prices are going up. Okay, so he'd admitted that, but he said, the president, Joe Biden, said, can't do much right now. Russia's responsible. So do you see Do you see the subtlety here? The not-so-subtle pivot? It's not my fault. It's Russia's fault. So when you go to the pump and you see that, you know, $4.15 for a, a gallon for regular, it's Russia's fault. It's not my fault. Of course, the problem is it started before Joe Biden, you know, uh, before Russia ever invaded Ukraine. And so... Um, this is a statement by, Pres- by uh, Ted Cruz that I want to read to you. He says, this is a flat-out lie. Gas prices have increased 48% under Biden before Russia invaded Ukraine. Biden did that. It's really striking. In 2019, the United States became a net energy exporter. We are an oil and gas superpower. And yet, under Joe Biden last year, for the first time since then, America stopped being a net energy exporter as our production went down. And so it's the opposite. Joe Biden is just a, just a liar. And also, they're reaching out, of course, to our enemies on Iran, which I'm, again, I'm hoping to do an in-depth thing on this, but the headline is, Biden's Iran deal gives the Iranian regime access to $90 billion. They give $7 billion for ransom payments and sanctions re- sanction relief so that the mullahs can be unleashed to do what it is that the mullahs like to do. Uh, Gabriel Norona of uh, Cabot Magazine says that this particular deal does not restore that horrible Barack Obama-Iran deal. It's much worse. 
much worse, so bad that multiple career officials view these capitulations as so detrimental to U.S. national security that they contacted me requesting that I rapidly share details of these concessions with Congress and the public in an effort to stop them. And uh, again, we'll spend a little more time, that's my goal, on that. uh, By the way, Scott Pressler in New York York State is uh, starting a gas station voter registration. Uh, March the 19th and 20th for a weekend of action. Uh, we're going to register new voters at gas stations across New York. Isn't that brilliant? It's really a great idea. Um, and uh, let's see, a couple of other really important things I wanted to share with you. I've just got a lot of news this morning. Um, so I wanted to, this is the last point I wanted to make, but I don't think I have time to play the clip. And that is that Europe is now, you know, stopping importing, uh, gasoline from Russia. Germany, I think is going to phase it, phase out. And they're all very happy about this. And it's like they are uniting behind Ukraine. That's what they want to take a victory lap over. And that the United States is uniting behind, you know, helping Ukraine. But really, honestly, the real thing that's happening here is that this is perfect for them. They have been pushing the Greens in Germany, the Greens in Europe, and the Green New Deal people here in the United States. This is this is a perfect dream for them because they want to stop any kind of use of gas and oil. They want windmill. They want electric. Well, really what they want because that will never replace oil and gas energy. It just won't. What they really want is to cripple the middle class. I don't have time to develop that any more than just trust me. It's just perfect for them. Europe is, you know, practically, you know, they're excited about this. And I think uh, the Biden administration and the the environmentalists around him are excited about this. Meanwhile, the middle class is just taking a beating, just taking a beating. So there are a lot of agendas here. None of them good. None of them good. Um, And it's just, it's so twisted. You know, the left is just masterful at taking these disasters and twisting them to their benefit. Uh, They did it with COVID. They do it with, you know, uh, hurricanes, with storms. They do it with everything. And so just be aware. And I hope that you can see clearly, if you understand the overall goal of destruction, you can understand more clearly Uh, in spite of the confusion, what's happening here. All right, we're going to take a break because there's other news. There's a lot of other news. I want to bring it to you best I can. But we want to talk about this new nominee to the Supreme Court uh, because that's important and that's happening like really quickly in our Senate. So stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. How do we change a nation? One heart at a time. The Ministry of Preborn not only shares heartbeats, but shares hearts by loving women in crisis and leading them to Christ. When this mother came to a preborn center, she was scared and not sure she could afford another child. It was just a scary time for us having my daughter, how that would impact our lives. When I came here, it was just so amazing to come to an environment where someone would actually pray for me and guide me through my battles that I was facing during that time. After receiving love, support, and the gospel of Christ, this mom chose life for her daughter. You can be a part of rescuing lives and changing hearts for Christ. For $140, sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and pictures of babies' lives that were spared. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. 
or go to preborn.com. Your gift is tax deductible. The following are real life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. I initially was scared to call and immediately I felt relief. They contacted all of our creditors and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes. Stand by for news and commentary next. Everyone's goals for advancing their education look different. At Liberty University, we've helped thousands of students like you earn their dream degree. So no matter what your goal is, we can help you get there. With over 450 degrees from the associate to the doctoral level to choose from, most of which are 100% online, you'll find what you need to succeed. To discover which degree might be the best fit for you, text DEGREE to 49595. That's DEGREE to 49595. Hudsonville, Michigan is the kind of Midwestern town you'd like to raise a family, good people, good neighborhoods. For years, the City Commission has had a mission to serve God through making stronger families and bettering community life. It's a noble mission unless you are an atheist. The Freedom From Religion Foundation says they received a complaint about Hudsonville's mission statement. The Wisconsin-based atheist group says serving God is inappropriate, unconstitutional. They wrote a nasty letter to the town's mayor demanding city leaders stop serving God. And that's exactly what they did. The godless atheists saluted the city's decision, saying the government's purpose cannot be to serve God. But that was certainly not the intent of our founding fathers. President John Adams once wrote, Our Constitution is wholly inadequate for anyone other than a moral and religious people. But the atheists want one nation under man, not God. I'm Todd Stearns. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. I do know that one can only come this far by faith. Among my many blessings, and indeed the very first, is the fact that I was born in this great country. I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. That's the voice of Katanji Brown-Jackson. That was in her speech that she gave after she was nominated to be sitting on the Supreme Court. You remember before, before the latest dust-up, we were talking about uh, President Biden nominating uh, a black female a judge. That was very important, and there was a lot of controversy about that. So he kind of narrowed it down to, I think, like three candidates, and then he made his decision. And it's kind of gotten lost in the news uh, the the record of Katanji Brown Jackson, what's happening in the Senate with that, 
and how we should think about this. Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about it. I'll tell you right up front. And I don't think the uh, Republican senators are as concerned about it as I am. But we need to know more. And I confess to you that I'm on the, on the front end of the learning curve here. And so this morning I've asked Keisha Russell, who is with First Liberty, because she's been following uh, Katanji's background, her decisions, uh, and uh, has you know been speaking for First Liberty about this. So we asked her to get up early this morning and tell us what she knows. Good morning, Keisha. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure. All right, so um, right up front, do, would you say that uh, Katanji is the most liberal? Is it true that she's the most liberal of the black female choices that Joe Biden had listed that were on the list? Well, I think it would be hard to say. I think the other two were a harder choice for the administration uh, because they had some pretty direct uh, controversial decisions and activities. So Kruger argued a case in front of the Supreme Court um, on a really big uh, church autonomy case called Hosanna Tabor, which was decided in favor of the church. And she argued a pretty liberal position, very limiting in terms of religious freedom. And Childs had some decisions, I think, that were just a lot more highly political. Now, uh, Jackson doesn't have as many of those. She's, she's got some uh, connections to some liberal groups. And certainly there are some indications that her judicial philosophy is pretty liberal, but the connections are not as direct as the other two. So I think it, Joe Biden probably saw that as a much easier choice in terms of the nomination. Okay. Well, I've been reading a lot, I mean, you know, a, a fair amount about her record as we know it. It sounds pretty, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have a frame of reference for the others, but it sounds pretty radical. I mean, I was just, I'll just bring, mention three things to you and, and be great. It'd be interesting to get your perspective on this. Uh, you know, most attorneys do give free legal services. I'm sure you know all about that. And her choice uh, to, to give her services was to work on behalf of Gitmo terrorists. And, of course, there were 729 released, and 20, 229 of those reengaged in terrorist activities. So that, that was what she volunteered to do. I think that's a red flag, Keisha. Don't, don't, I mean, would you, maybe, maybe you don't agree with me. I think that's a red flag. Uh, yeah, the certainly. Other, and, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, certainly. Uh, I think so. And I, I would say that there, there, there were others. Too. I mean, she she wrote an amicus brief on behalf of NARAL, which is a, a pretty big abortion group, um, and she argued against sort of a religious pro-life uh, position to be able to talk to women outside of abortion clinics. Uh, she was in favor of free speech zones, but thought pro-life um, you know, supporters shouldn't be allowed in those zones. I think that's probably one of the other ones that people point to as well. Um, I would say that her opinions, you know, the opinions that she's written as a judge, there weren't too many that you could point to. So that's what I meant by that. But yes, certainly um, her her judicial philosophy is quite liberal. I mean, most of the scholars compare her opinions and her writing to Justice Sotomayor. So, I mean, that's pretty liberal. That's pretty liberal. Yeah, I I agree. And sometimes not rational for Sotomayor anyway. Well, no. um, So there's another one, another accusation about, and then honestly, I don't know this case, Keisha, so I just have to read to you what I've what I've read here, uh, that somehow she contorted the Freedom of Information Act to shield a top Clinton aide from having his emails subjected to public scrutiny. We probably remember that. I, I do remember that. There was the Clinton emails that were so controversial, and she stepped in to, um, to protect 
this top Clinton aide, and that was a red flag for some people. But you know what? Tell us uh, the positives, uh, because uh, she does have on paper some very good credentials. So can you tell us about that? Certainly, yeah. So she, you know, she went to Harvard for undergrad and law school. Uh, she clerked for Justice Breyer, which is the justice that she's been uh, nominated to replace. Um, and she's been a judge for a pretty long time. It's been about eight years. She spent seven of those years on the D.C. Circuit uh, District Court. And the, for the last year, she's been on the Court of Appeals. Uh, so she, her confirmation for that was only last year. And uh, she kind of skirted through that confirmation with a few Republican votes as well. Yes, I think I know who those people were. I, I, let's see. I think I have that down here. And she didn't get many Republican uh, support. Three, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and Lindsey Graham. Uh, right. And, uh, but now I actually think, Keisha, it sounds to me like I just don't think the Republicans are going to fight on this. And I'm a little concerned about it because um, there are other things you know, the far left wing groups are pouring millions into her confirmation. Demand justice is one of them. And you know that they're left of the left. The people that are, you know, when I'm looking for a person that's running for office, one of my first questions is, you know, who's endorsing you uh, and where are you mm-hmm. getting your money? And that tells us about the person. So can you talk about that, uh, about, you know, who's supporting this nomination and who's the most excited about it? Yeah, certainly. Uh, lots of the abortion groups, um, all of the big names that you would think, uh, and many of the atheist groups, a lot of groups that First Liberty, you know, we're a religious liberty organization. We defend religious freedom in America, and we're on the opposite side of litigation of some of those organizations. There are, many of them are atheist groups, anti-religious freedom, um, and many of those groups support her. Uh, and certainly they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't think that she was going to be friendly to their position. Yeah, I think Americans for uh, people for the American way uh, and also demand justice, which I mentioned, which has become really the premier group. They're the ones that seem to be best funded. They're the ones that really, uh, let's say, got their act together to try to destroy Kavanaugh and other uh, conservative nominees. The Center for Reproductive Rights, Planned Parenthood, they're all, you know, their hat is all thrown in. And that is a red flag for us. I also think the unions are excited about this, too. Uh, because there is a there is a ruling that she made in 2018 in favor of the federal employee union that sought to force collective bargaining, despite acknowledging that the president has both statutory and constitutional authority to issue executive orders pertaining to labor management relations. So that was kind of a uh, maybe you can say say more about that decision. I know you can't be an expert on every decision she made, but do you know something about that one? Uh, not. Specifically, I mean, I am familiar with the decision. I'll say that, you know, in terms of her decision, uh, she's got a pretty high reversal rate. Um, and a lot of them were about those kinds of issues, uh, sort of administrative deference issues. Um, and, you know, she had one during the Trump administration uh, where he was wanting to expedite the deportation for those who are in the country illegally, um, had the authority to do it. And she halted that program, and then she was subsequently reversed by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is notable because most of that circuit is is, is made up of Democratic judges. Um, so I can tell you that in the, her confirmation hearing, the Republicans that do want to highlight her judicial philosophy are going to talk about the decision you just mentioned and the one I just mentioned, um, because her reversal rate 
is it's about 10%, which is a little over 10%, actually, which is very high. Um, and a lot of that will point to the fact that she's probably prone to judicial activism. And what that means is that she's willing to, say, twist the law in order to get a political position that she agrees with. You know, to, to illustrate that a little bit, it'd be interesting to get your uh, your uh, perspective on a statement she made in April of 2021. She was talking about the fact that she believes the Constitution is a living document. And let's hear her say it. It's clip 11. Let's listen. I believe that the Constitution is an enduring document. It is, uh, it has, the Supreme Court has said, um, a fixed meaning that we're to look to the original uh, words in the Constitution and interpret, uh, as lower court judges, interpret provisions the way in which the Supreme Court does, and they look at the text and look at the original meaning. And so if I ever had one of those cases, that is how I would uh, approach the task. Well, Senator, my my view comports with um, the Supreme Court's view, because as a judge, I have to apply um, the doctrines of the Supreme Court. And it is very clear from uh, the court's uh, recent rulings, from um, the, the recent COVID cases, Trinity Lutheran, Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop, and various others that the court um, is looking into and is concerned about uh, restrictions on religious liberty as a First Amendment principle. Um, As well, they should be because the First Amendment uh, includes religious freedom as a core uh, constitutional right. So my my views comport with uh, what the Supreme Court um, has held about these things, and I would have to apply the Supreme Court's principles in any of my cases. All right, so I have to confess to you, Keisha, I hadn't heard that clip recently, and I'm confused. What did she just say from your perspective? Well, she's she's saying that she is willing to apply the precedent, meaning, you know, the former Supreme Court decisions, Um, in a way that she feels like the Supreme Court is in line with, um, and she's willing to interpret it in a way that uh, they are in line with. Now, she says in the beginning, um, or seems to imply, that she is is willing to take an originalist perspective and a textualist perspective. Well, she says textualism, which is um, a little different than originalism, but certainly in the same vein. What that means is that you just look to the actual text of a statute or law to try to determine the the, the meaning uh, that was meant during the drafting, which is the way Republicans would describe their philosophy. But there was a point, uh, I believe during that same hearing, uh, where she's asked directly whether she believes the Constitution is a living document, and she uh, declines to answer that, um, that question. Um, and there's another point in time uh, where, if I'm not mistaken, she actually says she does believe that it is a living document. Um, so it, it, it's hard to tell. I could tell you that based on her her opinions, it certainly seems like she believes the Constitution is a living document. Um, and based on, you know, some of her reversals, it, it, it would seem that some of her colleagues on the D.C. Circuit don't completely agree with her judicial philosophy or her interpretation of the law. Well, of course, I, you know, actions speak louder than words. I believe I've heard that before. <laughs> and uh, so you can, say, you can say a lot of things, and you can be uh, unclear, which is what she was being. 
uh, but really her actions um, show that I think you're right. She doesn't believe. Look, let me explain this because we should explain it better, Keisha. These are the language of uh, attorneys, and because I've been, because I'm, I know a little bit about this world. I'm not an attorney, but we need to say that this is actually a core a distinction among uh, attorneys now. The whole issue of whether the Constitution should be interpreted based on the original meaning of the writers or whether it should move and breathe and change and adapt to our times so that we sort of forget about what the the framers really actually originally meant and kind of add our own flair to it. And that's where Ruth Bader Ginsburg was and I'm sure Stephen Breyer and uh, the rest of the... in Sotomayor, yeah. So it breathes yeah. so it bre- there's so many gaps in the breathing that they can actually decide any way they want and make an excuse for it. That's basically what it means. And, and expand on that if, if if there's anything I've left out there, Keisha. Yeah, certainly. I mean that 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 difference in philosophy is the difference in many of the controversial opinions that people talk about today. The abortion opinions are rely on these idea of a living constitution. There is no right to, to an abortion in the constitution anywhere. And the only way you can get to that right is by interpreting the Constitution in a way that it was not originally intended. Um, and so that's one of the biggest sort of uh, critiques of the abortion precedents is that uh, they don't comply with an originalist perspective of the Constitution. And there are others, and most of them are the most top-button issues in, in our society right now. And in order to get the interpretation that, say, the culture begs for or wants, you really have to bend uh, the 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 Constitution as it's written, certainly. Keisha, before we run out of time, really, we just have about a minute left. Now, the issue for the jurists and for the like the custom of D.C. is that Breyer has gone, and we're replacing someone like Breyer, and so it's okay to let this pass, to let someone pass who probably will be uh, deciding some really important cases. Um, what is your view? Should the Republican Senate senators uh, vote because that's fair and that's what the that's what we've always done, or should there be some opposition? Well, I think they definitely should use the time to educate the American people about what the role of the judge really is and shine light on some of the things that Judge Jackson has done to indicate that she's not in line with the proper role of a judge or a proper judicial philosophy. Now, the Republicans are outvoted on this issue, and I think that's one of the reasons why they're not putting up such a big fight. But certainly they should use it to highlight what the proper role of the judge is. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, interesting. I guess I, I guess I feel like the country's on fire, and they should there should be more fight on this. That's what's kind of disturbing me right now. But Keisha Russell, we appreciate your time. Keisha Russell from First Liberty, our good friend Kelly Shackelford, thank you for joining us. Hello, I'm Don Hawkins, here to tell you about Encouragement Live. 55 minutes of industrial strength radio encouragement featuring resourceful guests plus practical biblical insights to help you face life's challenges. We'll be taking your phone calls. So plan to join us for Encouragement Live, Saturdays at 7.05 p.m. Central, 8.05 p.m. Eastern, here on American Family Radio. In His Image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality. I loved it. I loved how biblically sound it was, all the scripture to back it up. The testimonies were very powerful. If it's a prodigal child that has just run away, or one that's caught up in same-sex attraction, there's hope in Jesus. 
In His Image is now available on DVD and can be purchased in bulk to pass out to friends and family. Order today by visiting afastore.net. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. When their mom passed, the Landau brothers of New Jersey had a garage sale to clear out their mom's house. But they decided to keep a few things, including mom's old creepy painting of a woman passed out in a chair and two men trying to revive her. Fast forward to their estate auction, and the brothers found themselves fielding bids from France and Germany for the painting. Turns out, it was a long-lost Rembrandt that ultimately sold for $1.1 million. A trained eye spots value where others don't. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net. For more from Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Judy Goodell and her husband set up a charitable gift annuity through the AFA Foundation. What we love about it is that it represents stewardship principles that we feel strongly about. So we got very, very excited about this opportunity. With a charitable gift annuity through the AFA Foundation, an AFA supporter can guarantee a permanent monthly income, as well as supporting the American Family Association for years to come. We do feel convicted about really praying about all that God has really blessed us with. And so many people we know just want to leave it all to their kids. And we know the danger of that. And so we just are really just trying to pray through it. And God gave us great confirmation as we prayed that this would be a good use of the Lord's money. Find out if a charitable gift annuity is right for you at 800-326-4543, extension 345, or email foundation at afa.net. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Vice President Kamala Harris has been dispatched to buck up our NATO partners on the alliance's eastern front lines. The effect is likely to be further signs of diminished confidence in the United States and slip sliding away from confrontation with Vladimir Putin's Russia over Ukraine. For example, on the eve of Harris's trip to Poland, Warsaw offered to send 28 of its old Soviet MiG-29 fighter jets to a U.S. base in Germany in exchange for more modern American ones. Washington has nixed the idea, declining to transfer the MiGs onward to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Germany has refused to end its perilous dependence on Russian energy imports, with the Ukrainians negotiating what sounds like their inevitable surrender to Putin. Expect more such fractures in NATO's united front, especially in the wake of Kamala Harris's practice of off-putting and incompetent diplomacy. This is Frank Gaffney. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Okay, Sandy Rios back with you. And now for the rest of the news, as Paul Harvey used to say. (laughs) Oh, I remember. Remember that voice? Some of you don't remember him. This is Paul Harvey. And now the rest of the news. Uh, He was great. Chicago guy, by the way. Anyway, I remember singing at a church uh, one Sunday morning, and there was Paul Harvey sitting in the audience. And I was so intimidated. (laughs) It made me so nervous. But anyway, he was a great man. All right, now the rest of the news. Um, So this is not good news, and that is that last night, uh, lawmakers reached a deal on a $1.5 trillion spending bill to avoid the government shutdown, which would have taken place, I think they had till the 11th, 
So, you know, under the guise of giving aid to Ukraine, I'll tell you what they did. They gave um, $13.6 billion in aid to Ukraine and European allies. I don't know what, who the European allies were. $15.6 billion in funding for COVID-19 vaccines, testing, and treatments in the United States and abroad. And so I'm sure they'll take a victory lap today because they saved our country from the government shutting down. It's just so bizarre. I know that Chip Roy is probably sick at heart today, and so is Mike Lee and all the other, the 10 senators who fought against this because you know President Biden will be delighted to support funding more of COVID. Yeah, more of the mandates all fully funded thanks to the Republicans in the Senate, Uh, Mitch McConnell, who was fine with it. And uh, so that's what happened, $1.5 trillion spending bill. And I'm just it's all so twisted. What else can I say? Nothing else. So I'm finding out now that uh, according to an article by Natalia Mittelstadt, the Department of Health and Human Services paid for advertising of COVID-19 vaccines on hundreds of media outlets uh, because of a Freedom of Information Act request. By filed by the Blaze. This is a report in the Blaze. The Health and Human Services revealed that it had purchased advertising from major media outlets like ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, The New York Post, The Los Angeles Times, The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and Newsmax. In addition to hundreds of local TV stations and newspapers, So they did not only direct ads, but they also did editorial remarks. They pushed the vaccines, pushed them, pushed them, pushed them. And they were paid to do it by your tax dollars. One billion, actually, for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to strengthen vaccine confidence in the United States. It was called the COVID-19 Public Education Campaign, and it was very effective. That's why your friends and neighbors are still running around uh, hovering in their masks because they got propagandized courtesy of your tax dollars and the cooperation of news outlets that you trusted. And that brings me to the next story here. Um, I'll go to this one because this is amazing. You remember um, I read to you actually the almost the entire article uh, of the, the Daily Wire by Megan Basham a couple of weeks ago where she did an expose of how evangelical leaders were uh, coaxed, coached, coaxed, and sometimes paid uh, to push the vaccines. Um, and uh, it was pretty stunning and damning, the story. Well, they have a, they have a follow-up today. They have uh, discovered uh, um, leaked audio of uh, Francis Collins, who was the former National Institutes for Health uh, director, he's the guy with the the mustache and the kind of grayish hair who sounds very folksy when he talks. That's Francis Collins, who has wielded power. He was Dr. Fauci's boss. Just to give you put this in perspective, they were the ones that uh, they, we saw their their private emails were discovered, uncovered, where they uh, wanted to destroy the doctors who were speaking badly about the vaccines and trying to point out the dangers and that it was experimental, et cetera, et cetera. They wanted to destroy them, even though you know they were highly credentialed, uh, but they colluded together to do that. So that's one thing that we know about Francis Collins. But uh, Megan breaks more information this morning, and I'm going to, this is a long article, so let me just say right up front, we'll post it, this on our Getter page. It's, um, the title is long. It's in, it, in leaked audio 
former NIH director slash new Biden science advisor, laughs over threatening unemployment to force vaccines and blames Trump for the COVID deaths. It's, it's uh, yeah, that's what it is. He was at the University of Chicago, and the thing was hosted uh, by um, Russell Moore on behalf of the Institute of Politics, which is an organization founded by senior Obama advisor David, David Axelrod. So it's a very happy little gathering with uh, Francis Collins and Russell Moore moderating and David Axelrod of the Obama World uh, funding. So uh, they're having this little uh, conversation. And uh, Moore had gathered students to listen to it. They um, And Moore said he invited Collins to explain the efforts they have made separately and together to deal with evangelical resistance to the vaccine with COVID and some of the controversies we've had over masking and government mandates. Um, there's so much in this, but let me see if I can get uh, down to something. He was laughing. Collins is laughing on this recording about people losing their job. Oh yeah, you know we found that if we uh, we put it, we tied it to their job. They weren't so serious about not taking it. <laughs> when we told them they were going to lose their jobs, they just you know. And he actually makes fun of a southern ac- uses a southern accent. They're sort of thinking to themselves, you know, maybe I really should do it. But if I do, I lose my credibility with my peeps. He claims that the reason evangelicals don't want to get the vaccination is because they they don't want to offend their peers. They're afraid. So um, so he's, then he says, well, my employer made me do it. I didn't really want to get them. They got, you know, bonus points because they're not a victim. But they've also gotten a mandated vaccine that they kind of wanted anyway. So that's the conversation. That's part of it. There's tons of it. And then they... Um, he goes on to mock evangelicals, and Russell Moore is happy to help him do that. He also claimed that the Trump administration violated the norms of separation of church, separation of church and state, by, by reaching out to white Protestant voters. <laughs> and, um, of course, that, the, the, the counter to that is that this is, that's ridiculous because the Obama administration and the Clinton administration, Obama especially, uh, went head over heels uh, to get uh, religious groups, especially black churches. And it's just, uh, it says distortion of what's true. Uh, so at the University of Chicago event, Collins called evangelicals overwhelming support of Trump in 2016 and 20, 2020 elections divisive and the devil's bargain. They did great damage to the credibility of the church. And then he also goes on then to blame President Trump for all the deaths, which, you know, there there were deaths. I don't know how President Trump, honestly, you know I support him, but seriously, if I just think about this intellectually, I don't know how President Trump could have done much more. You know, he mistakenly, uh, because he was he received all this information, this is my surmise, and this makes sense to me. President Trump received all this information, as we all did, about people dropping in the streets in China and about how horrible this uh, this COVID was and it was spreading and dangerous and millions of people were going to die. And so he's a businessman. He responded uh, by putting together a business model and bypassing the normal regulations because it was an emergency. That's why he declared an emergency. That's what he was being told. And who was telling him that? It was you know, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, uh, because of all the reasons we've discussed before, there was a lot of money to be made. Um, and so I think he responded to that, having no idea that in many ways he was being duped. So we got vaccines pushed through that were not properly tested. 
But, of course, he didn't oversee that. It was Fauci who oversaw it, Francis Collins and the CDC. Uh, They were fine with this. And even when they had early indications that there was danger, they didn't let the public know. They just pushed forward like a steamroller. And so, uh, but now they, now he's, now Francis Collins is going to blame blame President Trump for all the deaths from COVID. Um, I'm not, and then it goes on to talk about how uh, Collins oversaw experimentation with hormones and transgender, uh, but with kids, uh, how he harvested live uh, organs from live aborted babies, uh, all this stuff. And of course, um, um, the moderator is sitting right there. Russell Moore is, you know, he knows all of this and he's fine with it. And that's so there's so many layers to this just terrible, really, further information that we're getting about the corruption of uh, of uh, Russell Moore and, shall we say, corruption or just deception. Um, and also Francis Collins, who is the supposedly an evangelical. Uh, again, we'll put that article on our uh, Getter page. It's worth the read, all of it. I wish I had time to read all of it. And speaking of the LGBTQ uh, issue, uh, yesterday, um, March the 8th, yesterday, uh, in Florida, Ron DeSantis uh, signed a bill uh, that it's called um, the Parents' Rights in Education Bill. It passed in the Senate, 21 to 17, and it it is a it's it's a bill that says that you can't introduce sexual orientation to children pre-K through third grade. And so Ron DeSantis uh, was in this press conference, and of course uh, the left is printing this as the don't say gay bill. This is the don't say gay bill. So Ron DeSantis in the press conference was not about to let that go, and I want you to hear how he responded to a reporter. This is clip six. Does it say that in the bill? Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. It says it bans classroom instruction on sexual identity and gender orientation. For who? For for grades pre-K through three. So five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and. Um, the idea that you wouldn't be honest about that and tell people what it actually says, it's why people don't trust people like you because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. And we're going to make sure that parents are able to send their kid to kindergarten without having some of this stuff injected into their school curriculum. God bless Ron DeSantis. His press secretary, Christina Pouchard, went, went further. And she said it's uh, not the don't say gay bill, it's the anti-grooming measure. And you know what grooming is. Grooming is what pedophiles do to small children. Uh, They introduce them to uh, topics that soften them in in areas of sexuality. It's called grooming. And it's just, it's even disgusting to talk about it, isn't it? But we have to because our kids are just being under assault. In Howard County, Maryland, eighth grade students were subjected to a video in English class featuring a biological woman who identifies as a man talking about transgender issues. The video begins with discussions surrounding genital surgery, sex, and public restrooms before devolving into a screed about transgenderism in general. I'm reading for the Daily Signal. In California, two teachers aided a 12-year-old girl with gender transition without telling her parents, and then they called Child Protective Services when the parents found out and tried to stop it. And then they point out that last year, Christy Nome, a Republican who I think has aspirations, failed to stand up for biological reality when she vetoed a bill to ban biological males 
from participating in girls' and women's sports. And uh, her actions empowered the radical left, which viewed her refusal to ban men from ruining women's sports as a jab in the arm toward its warped worldview. Now, Noam has since backtracked because she came under a lot of fire. She tried to deny that she did that, but she did it. And I think you have to remember that when she is seeking further office. There is there is a chink in the armor there, and you need to be aware of it. And so then another person in D.C. tweeted last night, Tom Bevan, you've seen him on television, I'm sure. Tom says, last night my fifth grader told us his vocabulary words for science this week were adolescence, consent, transgender, cisgender, and non-binary. His fifth grader. That's the vocabulary words for science. Yeah, that's how twisted it's becoming, and that's why what Ron DeSantis did was bold and important, and a God willing, other governors and states, state legislatures, because there's a lot of Republican legislatures around the country. And again, I tell you, just being a Republican doesn't really mean anything anymore. So you have to elect the right people and take great care. And I want to mention one last thing. Matt Schlapp, who is, of course, uh, the head of CPAC, and you know that he's a, uh, that I'm, he's a friend of mine. Um, not that that's important, but I have to say that because so you'll know where I'm coming from on this. Matt actually uh, tweeted out that uh, the the transgender swimmer, uh, Leah Tom- Thomas, uh, he said, no matter what one thinks of Leah's ability to swim with women, her story deserves our compassion. It will be interesting to hear Leah's, uh, uh, her story in 30 years, her point of view in 30 years. Uh, and so Matt's under fire for this. Some people are saying withdraw from CPAC because they are accusing him of uh, endorsing transgenderism. Uh, Matt, that's not true of Matt. I know it's not true. He's publicly, uh, in the, and the Con- American Conservative Union has scored uh, legislators on this. Uh, he's asking people to view Leah with compassion. I would agree with that. The mistake he did make is using her pronoun, uh, the her pronoun. I think that he shouldn't have done that, but I don't think it means he embraces transgender male swimmers competing in women's sports. So there you have some of the news today. Sandy Rios in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.